continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 44 this morning. We're going to finish up the chapter today. Luke chapter 4, verse 31 through 44. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and these guys will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. I'm so used to saying to my grandgirls, come to Papa, come to Papa. I almost said that with Lily, come to Papa. I'm not your Papa, but so precious. All right, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 31, we read, speaking of Jesus, that he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is. For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever. And they made requests of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. The title of my message this morning is A Day in the Life of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word together. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts personally, Lord, and and in this church corporately, Lord. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again, Lord, would would you especially touch their heart today, help them to see their need for you, and to come to faith in you, Lord Jesus. Bless our time together, we pray. Give us understanding and application from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had one of those days that it was really, really stressful, really hectic, and at the end of the day you were just exhausted? Let me ask it in a different way. Do you have kids? (laughs) Have you ever said at the end of your day, can we start over again? I wasn't ready. (laughs) I think many of us, you know, we have these planners that we have in our phone, the calendars, you know, we, we put our appointments in there, reminders, what we have to do on certain days. You know, I have this appointment today, and then later on I have to meet over here, then I'm going to have to go over there, and, and this appointment. What if you opened up your planner this morning, before you came to church, and it said you had three things to do today? Dealing with a demon at church, dealing with a sick mother-in-law, and dealing with a crowd of people. I think we'd all be tempted just to turn off our phones and go back to bed. Not Jesus. 
This was a typical day in the life of Jesus. And our three points, if you're a note taker this morning, we're going to see Jesus dealing with the demon at church, dealing with a sick mother-in-law, and dealing with a crowd of people. Now, I think that many of us would have loved to have spent a day in the life of Jesus. And thanks to Dr. Luke here, he makes it possible for us. We know that Luke is the writer of this gospel, that he was a, a doctor and a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. He wrote this gospel while Paul was in prison, and in writing it, he made use of other older documents, such as the Gospel of Mark, as well as extensive eyewitnesses, uh, their accounts, how did this happen. He got it all down for us. And it records that after Jesus was baptized, we know that Jesus spent some time in the desert. He was tested by Satan. We looked at that. He then returned to the Galilee area and was in the synagogue at Nazareth, his hometown, and there he declared that he was the Messiah. Well, that didn't go over so well. And so uh, the people of Nazareth rejected him. Jesus uh, said, a prophet is without honor in his own home. He then shared how that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And at that point, that's when they tried to throw him off a cliff, if you remember. Verse 30, it says here, then passing through the midst of them, he won his way. I love that. You know, maybe they had him by his shoulder and they're escorting him out and, and they're getting ready to throw him off the cliff and then he's just gone. Where'd he go? I thought you had him. I thought you had him. He's gone. You know, listen, uh, no one was going to take his life. He came to this earth to give his life, to seek and to save those that were lost. And, and, and so that's what it was. And so this was the day he now moves from Nazareth. He moves to Capernaum, as we read. And it's a new day. This day would be a very eventful day for our Lord. It was a day in which a lot of ministry took place and a lot of needs were met. I think it was a day that, for most of us, it would be very stressful. I think we might even tend to be frazzled out by the end of the day. A day that had brought us to a place of losing perspective, but not so for Jesus. See, here we are given some insights into why Jesus led such a focused life, why we never see him frazzled or stressed out. We're going to look at this whole day uh, this morning, and hopefully when we're finished, we too will know how to not be frazzled and stressed out as well. Well, now we begin. It's Saturday morning, the Sabbath, our Sunday. Jesus' first priority, get to the synagogue, get to church. Look at verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Again, Notice the first place Jesus is at. He's in church, so to speak. He's in the synagogue. Remember, we looked at last time in verse 16 that it was Jesus' custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Well, when the Sabbath day rolled around, that's where Jesus was. He made it a priority to be in church. Now, here's an interesting thought. Do you think that when Jesus was in church, in the synagogue, that he learned anything while he was there? No way. I mean, what, what could you teach Jesus? But that didn't stop him from going to church. He was there. In the same way, you may have been a Christian for many years. Maybe you've attended Calvary for many years. You know God's word well. You've heard all of my lame jokes, and I appreciate you still laughing at them. You come to a point where, where you may say, you know, I'm not getting much out of the message anymore. Well, maybe you've come to the point where you need to be like Jesus. And say, okay, church, church is not about, you know, what I can get. It's about what I can give. How can I touch the life of a person uh, or help them and meet their need? Jesus made it a priority to be in church, to minister to those around him, and so should we. 
And in verse 13 it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, or 32 rather, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. I mean, no doubt. Here you have the author of the book teaching from the book that he wrote. Think about that. I mean, if I told you we're going to have we, uh, go through a book on how to build electric vehicles and we're going to have Elon Musk show up to teach from it, you know you're going to get some pretty sound advice. He would be teaching from a place of authority. Here you have the creator of the universe standing up and teaching his word. No wonder they were astonished at his teaching uh, for his word was with authority. Listen, God's word should astonish us. It should amaze us every time we encounter it. Whether we, we hear it publicly or read it privately, it's delivered by God as a demonstration of his authority. Now, if you are not astonished and amazed, it could be the preacher. Like the story I heard of a little boy who after church service told the pastor, when I grow up, I'm going to give you some money. Well, thank you, said the pastor, but why? He says, because my daddy says you're one of the poorest preachers we've ever had. But understand, even with poor preaching, it can be ministered to you if it's based upon the Word of God, when God's Word is read. Anyone, anyone can get up here and read God's Word verbatim, and it will minister to your heart because it's God's Word to mankind. And I think it's good for us to recognize that. What we are reading, what we study Sunday morning and Wednesday evening, is God's holy, authoritative Word. And that as we spend time in God's Word, we realize that it's actually God through His Holy Spirit, the author of His Word, who is speaking to each one of us personally and corporately as a church, speaking to our hearts, giving us peace and comfort and direction. Psalm 119 verse 50 says, This is my comfort and my affliction, for your Word has given me life. We're told in Psalm 119 verse 103 through 105 How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Maybe the reason you feel frazzled, maybe the reason you feel that your life is full of frustration is because you've not spent time in God's word. You haven't set yourself a time aside just to be in God's word. You see, what should happen on Sunday morning Wednesday night, if you come to the men's and women's studies on Thursdays, it should whet your appetite for more of the Word of God, to dig deeper into the Word of God. You see here, Luke really goes into great lengths to emphasize the importance that Jesus placed upon teaching God's Word. And that is why we place such a great importance on it as well here at Calvary. Let me suggest to you four simple things that I believe are my responsibility when it comes to teaching God's Word, and for that are yours when it comes to receiving from God's Word. First, the Bible should be read publicly, and as we've done it here, that we read the text that we're going over for the day. Secondly, the Bible should be presented systematically. That is, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of the the people according to His leading. You know, not, not... my pet topic for the week or the mother, we're going to talk for two months on how you should give more money to the church. We don't do that. Thirdly, the Bible should be taught so all can understand. If we do an expositional exegesis on these verses, we determine a hermeneutics that will give to us an establishment of the principles by which it should be interpreted so that we have proper insight into the sanctification and justification of the work of Christ. What? 
Pastor Chuck Smith said, simply teach the word simply. Psalm 119, 130, the teaching of your word gives light so even the simple can understand. Or Nehemiah 8, verse 8, puts the responsibility of a teacher of God's word. It says, so they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Nothing wrong with using big words as long as we understand what they mean. Then fourthly, there should be an effort to minimize distractions while the word of God is being taught. Now, those same four points have the corresponding uh, response from those who come to receive the Word. First and foremost, bring your Bible. Bring your Bible to church. If you don't own one, take one of ours. It's yours for free. Read it. Study it. You know, uh, read while, it, while it's being taught. Read what's, what's being taught. Read ahead for next week. Next week will be in Luke chapter 5. Get that down. Read that chapter. Prepare for that lesson. And then fourthly, help to minimize distractions both for your own sake and for those around you. You know, we put our cell phones on silent. You know, if you think you have to leave early, we sit in the back. If you have small children, we check them into the, to the children's ministry or we sit in the back with them. Do whatever you can to keep the distractions to a minimum so that you and others around you can be open to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to your hearts. Now, obviously, you can't eliminate every distraction because sometimes, as we see here in our study, the devil comes to church. <laughs> This brings us to our first point in the life of Jesus, dealing with the demon at church. You see, while Jesus is teaching, he's sharing from his word, there's a disturbance that takes place. Look at verse 33. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We have a a Bible app at our house. And, and uh, we can get the Bible read to us in the evening. And it's nice, especially when you're in bed and you're tired and you're trying to fall asleep, just to put it on. And the guy's got a nice voice, you know, you know and, and uh, had a spirit of unclean demon. And he cried out. when he got to this part, his voice changed. Let us alone. I wouldn't have to do it. Jesus, man, scared the daylight out of me. Gosh, you have to do that. But you see, there is a distraction here. Verse 33 tells us there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. I'm not sure if there's a thing, such thing as a clean demon. I think they're all unclean, but really unclean speaks of, of filthiness and, and beastliness. It's interesting to note that Jesus never went looking for demons. But wherever Jesus was, suddenly the demons got restless and they exposed themselves. Now, we may not experience it here in the U.S., but understand demon possession and demon oppression is a very real thing. We've covered this not too long ago. By way of reminder, demons are fallen angels. Remember when Lucifer rebelled against God, he was cast out of heaven. One-third of the angels followed him, thus making up the devil and his demons. Good news is there's two-third good angels that are still left. Well, this passage is especially interesting because it's the first in Luke's gospel where we encounter demon possession. Now, in the ancient world, they believed all sorts of superstitions about demons, much like Hollywood today. The ancient world believed that the air was thickly populated with evil spirits that sought entry into people. It was thought that often they entered through food or drink, and all illness was caused by them. The Egyptians believed that there were 36 different parts of the human body and that any of them could be entered through and controlled by one of these evil spirits. But in reality... It's not what we learn from superstitions or from Hollywood about demons, but what does the Bible say about them? 
What we know about them, we know from scriptures. We know that a demon cannot possess a believer in Jesus Christ. Light cannot dwell with darkness. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. We do, however, know that a demon can overtake a person's faculties and actually cause physical harm to that person who is possessed by them. And that's what we see going on here in our text. Yes, it's true that unbelievers can be demon-possessed, but I think more often than not, Satan is pleased to, to simply hold them captive without them even knowing it. In fact, we're told that in 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, he describes unbelievers as in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So we know demons are real. They can possess non-believers. They can deceive and manifest themselves in different ways. Now, I bring that up because, I don't know if you, if you caught this, but Pastor Jack Hibbs of uh, Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, did a special study last Wednesday evening that there's been some talk about lately. And he brought up this, this whole balloon thing that's been going on and the one we shot down in the United States and some talk about what these other objects were that we shot down. Yes, he says the first object we shot down was a spy balloon from China, but that's not the first spy balloon ever. He, he said that we in the U.S. have been doing spy balloons for many, many years. But these other objects that we had, had supposedly shot down, they're not calling them balloons. And according to one source, they actually had different shapes and different sizes. And we do know that U.S. Air Force General Glenn Van Herc, who oversees North American airspace, said last Sunday, after a series of shoot-downs of unidentified objects, that he would not rule out aliens or any other explanation yet, deferring to U.S. intelligence experts to figure out what they were, obviously claiming they are of unknown origin and objects. Now, we as Christians, we know God's Word, and we can figure out things much clearer than those in the world. And we know that the Bible says, in the last days, there's going to be signs in the heaven that's going to cause deception to deceive. I want to show a brief clip from Tucker Carlson that Pastor Jack showed in his church on Wednesday night. Go ahead, guys. According to Pastor Jack, this is an ongoing investigation. You can watch about it for hours online, all sorts of stories about it. The conclusion is, to those that have been researching this, it's definitely not of this world because it defies our physics. Some say, I don't know what I saw. Some say it couldn't have been a balloon because it moves very, very quickly and from side to side and up and down, and, and it just disappeared into the ocean. One admiral of the United States Navy, a man with high-ranking authority, said that after it descended into the ocean... They were able to track it for a while because they happened to be in the area doing maneuvers off the coast of San Diego with their submarines. And he said, as they tracked the device under the water, it was doing speeds up to 500 miles per hour under the water. That's impossible with any technology that we have today. And that's why the military is calling it not of this world. I would agree. But it's not alien. It's demonic. 
uh, at least that's what it seems certain like to me. It, this is a, a satanic deception able to manifest itself to deceive many and why the Bible says in the last days, do not be deceived. I do not believe in aliens, but a demonic, the demonic realm is real. Now, Pastor Jack did go on to say that something has happened in recent times that has opened the door to demonic activity that is now upon planet Earth. But I would say, I know what that something is. Jesus is coming back very, very soon. And he's pulling out all stops to try and deceive people before Jesus does. And it's going to continue to increase. That's why, again, we're told not to be deceived. Because, why? We know the truth. And, and like this man possessed by a demon here in Luke 4, and the manifestations of demons in these last days, we need to remember that they are created beings subject to the authority of God. As a child of God, they have no power over us. Yes, it's true. First Peter 5, 8 tells us we're to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Which is true. But to the child of God... He's a lion without teeth. All he can do is gum you up and harass you. That's because we stand in Christ, who has authority over all the entire demonic realm. Again, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And that's what we see with this demon-possessed man in this synagogue. Instantly, these demons recognized who Jesus was, and immediately they were shut down through the authority of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. They said to Jesus in verse 34, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice he's speaking in the plural. He's assuming that the person he's taken over is now a whole part of his plan. Which he's partly right. Again, Second Timothy 2.26, the unbeliever is in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Notice the demon says, leave us alone. Isn't that always the plea of Satan? Leave us alone. Let us alone. Satan doesn't want to release any of his prisoners. And here this demon tries his best to distract Jesus from his task. What was Jesus' task? 1 John 3, verse 8. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. This demon knew his days were numbered. But he just wasn't sure how many he had left. He knew and recognized who Jesus was and, and says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I think this is a good reminder to all of us. Knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus are two different things. I knew about Jesus growing up, but I didn't know him as my Lord and as my Savior until I almost turned 21 years old. See, it's possible to know the truth, but yet not have it have any effect or influence over your life, over your heart, if you will. To live your life knowing all the right words, all the Christian lingo down, but not have that change of heart in you. In reality, you are still being held captive by Satan to do his will until you completely surrender your life to Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, and come into that personal relationship with him. Because if you really know the Lord Jesus, if you truly have a relationship with him, then it's going to affect the way in which you live. You're no longer living for yourself and what you can get out of life. It's no longer about you. It's about him and what he's done for you. So this demon says, I know who you are the Holy One of God. Men may not know who Jesus is, but the demon does. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. I like this. I just like they did that Jesus' words were, Be quiet. The language is so strong that Luther rendered it, Shut up. 
I mean, we don't really picture Jesus saying, shut up, because, you know, our Sunday school experience, Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. So the next time your kids use the word shut up, you can say, well, we don't say those words around this family. But then they just might say, well, Jesus did. But then you could say, but Jesus was talking to a demon. If you're calling your mother a demon, you're in big trouble now, mister. <laughs> why, why wouldn't Jesus let this demon speak to this man uh, telling of who Jesus was? Why did Jesus say be quiet? Because Jesus did not want, nor did he need, the testimony of a demon. And even though what this demon was saying here is true, we also know that Satan is a father of lies. That Jesus just spent 40 days in the wilderness where Satan came and tempted him with lies and the twisting of God's word. So again, Jesus says, come out of him. Demons thrown out of him. He throws him in the midst. Verse 36, it says, then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, what a word this is. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Man, it's no wonder Jesus' fame uh, spread throughout the region. With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And what a morning in the life of Jesus. I think if you and I were one of the disciples and, and we witnessed this, we said, man, let's all go back to my house and let, let's just talk about what happened. I mean, that was amazing. That was radical. That was so cool. And that's what they do. Look what happens next. This brings us to our second point in the day in the life of Jesus. First, he was dealing with the demon. Then point number two, now he's dealing with the sick mother-in-law. Not one and the same, for those of you that don't have a, a good relationship with your mother-in-law. Look now, verse 38. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. So Luke is still calling Peter by his original name, Simon, Simon Peter, before Jesus changed it to Peter. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made requests of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. Well, now we come to the afternoon. The morning started in the synagogue where Jesus was teaching with authority. And all those listening were amazed. Suddenly the service was interrupted. A demon-possessed man is set free. Church is now over. And they head to the house to do what so many of us do Sunday right after church. We go home and we think about the message. No, we don't. Where are we going to eat? Let's go get some food. It's food time. Why? Because we Christians, we love to eat, right? Maybe we have sanctified taste buds, you know, born-again taste buds, rejuvenated by the Holy Spirit. Actually, I just think food tastes better when you're born again, that's all. You know, we sing praises to the Lord, we dig into God's Word, we feast on God's Word, uh, and, and then the church is over, let's go eat. You know, I love that. We're, we're being nourished spiritually through God's Word, then we go out and eat physically. There's something about eating together that even back in Christ's time, it was a very intimate thing. You gathered around the table. You took the bread and you broke it and you passed it to the person next to you and you all shared that same loaf of bread and you, you shared the cup and, and it was just this intimate thing that was going on. I think that's why Christians love to have a meal together because it's not so much about the food as it is about the fellowship. Now in those days, back then, they didn't have hoo they didn't have Sonic. They didn't have Brahms. They would go home and they would eat. So Simon says, hey, come to my house and eat. Maybe that's where the Simon Says game got started. I don't know. <laughs> so they get to Simon's house and they discover that his mother-in-law is sick. Dr. Luke says, but Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever. By the way, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I want to point out that Simon Peter had a wife and a mother-in-law. 
So if Peter was the first pope, as the Roman Catholics teach, which is not in the Bible, we need to understand he was married. He had a wife. You can't really have a mother-in-law unless you're married. You know, you have to be married to have a mother-in-law. And by the way, the Bible never puts down, puts down mother-in-laws. Naomi was a mother-in-law, and she was a precious and a blessed woman. Now, Luke, being a doctor, is letting us know that the sickness was severe. Peter's mother-in-law had a high fever, he says. So what do they do? Well, they give her two Tylenol and they drink, say, drink plenty of fluids and get some rest. No. They immediately bring the sickness to the attention of the great physician, Jesus. They made request of him concerning her, it says. Before they even sought treatment from the good doctor, Luke, they brought her to Jesus. Listen, that should always be the first person we turn to when we're sick. Many of you have been praying for my granddaughter, Mackenzie. A week ago, Tuesday, she was uh, not good. She was getting worse. Uh, she had a rash all over her body. She had fluid around her heart. She gained three pounds in three days full of fluid. Doctors had no clue what was going on. She was at St. Louis Children's Hospital. But through the power of prayer, Tuesday, she was horrible. Didn't know if she was going to make it. By Friday, she was home looking perfectly well. I, I mean, that, that is just God. God doing that work through the power of prayer, taking it to the great physician. They didn't know what was wrong, but the great physician did and healed her. Many people, you have the same testimony here as well. And that is the first thing they do here with Peter's mother-in-law as they look to Jesus, they made requests concerning her. It's interesting, this word request in verse 38 in the Old King James, it's a word that speaks of urgency, of fervency, of intensity. It wasn't, oh, by the way, could you maybe heal Peter's mother-in-law? No, this, this was intense. I mean, think about this. Is that your prayer life? Do you pray with a sense of urgency, fervency, and intensity? That's how we are instructed to pray. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. The implication there is to fervently seek him, keep asking, keep knocking. And then we see in verse 39, Jesus standing over her. He rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she arose and served them. Now again, some people try to, to, to compare this as rebuking the demon, saying that all disease is a result of demons. That's not true. The same wording is used here to indicate that Jesus has the same authority in the realm of diseases that he does over demons. Whether it's natural or supernatural, Jesus has all authority, all power to heal, to deliver, to act. Now there are three simple lessons that I want to point out about this healing that we see here. First and foremost, it's a lesson in sickness. And that is, even in godly homes, you experience sickness. Don't ever get the idea that, that you know, being spiritual immunes your home from sicknesses or sorrow. Godliness doesn't mean you'll never be sick, doesn't mean you'll never experience sorrow. But what a difference it makes when Jesus comes in. And then secondly, we see that, that, uh, a lesson in selflessness. Because I believe that Jesus was probably hungry, probably tired, had, a, had a, a busy morning. He needed some rest. The day before, they tried to throw him over a cliff. Got up early, went to the synagogue, taught, delivered a man from possessed by demon, come to Peter's house for some rest and a good meal. But he, sa- he saw there's some things that needed to be done before he could eat denied himself and sought to minister, looking to put others first. 
And then thirdly, we see a lesson in service that, that the sickness brought. We're told that immediately after Simon's mother-in-law was healed, she arose and served them. Isn't that how it is uh, when someone has experienced the delivering power of the Lord Jesus Christ? How our hearts just want to do something for Him and for others. This woman no sooner is healed, no sooner realizes that she is well, that she says, now I want to serve Him uh, because He's done this thing for me. And I want to serve others who are dear to Him and, and to me because of what He has done. She was saved to serve. And what a blessing that is that God heals us so we can serve Him. He heals us so we shouldn't go on living our life selfishly but that we would devote ourselves completely to Him and serving Him. We read here that she got up and she ministered to Jesus. Listen, if God has saved you and cleansed you and delivered you, then our life should be devoted to service as well. Henry Ironside, famous preacher and teacher, says this in his commentary, quote, Have you felt the touch of His healing hand? Has His voice rebuked the fever of sin that once raged in your very being? Is it your delight now to serve Him? Are you among those who are glad not only to avail themselves of His delivering power, but are now concerned about giving Him the service of a grateful heart? Are you putting yourself out for the blessings of other, of other people? Listen, if we're to be like Jesus, Jesus Himself said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So here we have a day in the life of Jesus. Church in the morning, teaching with authority, exercising power over a demon. Then in the afternoon, he continues to serve. He heals one who is sick, responding to fervent prayers, and Jesus exercises his power and authority over, over sickness. But the day is not over yet. We now come to the evening, and the third scene in the day in the life of Jesus, the sun is setting, and where do we find Jesus? Kicking back, feet up, relaxing? Nope. We come to point number three. He's dealing with a crowd of people. Look at verse 40. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. See, the news of what took place in the synagogue began to spread. People were lined up to see Jesus, all those who were sick with various diseases. And we read here that Jesus ministered to all of them. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. See, there is nothing that Jesus cannot do. He can heal anyone. The bigger question is that most of us ask is, will he heal me? Perhaps the more difficult question is, do you have enough faith to not be healed? Jesus can heal anyone. But what if he chooses not to? At least not yet. Will you still trust him? Job did. Job said this in, in Job thirteen fifteen: Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. But, but notice what Jesus is doing here. Even though he's had a really, really long day, He's still ministering to the people. He's serving them. He's blessing them. He's reaching out to them with hope. Again, if we want our lives to reflect the lives of Jesus, then we need to do the same. Maybe when you go to lunch after church today uh, to a restaurant, bless the waitress. Bless the waiter. I've talked to many a waiter and waitress. They said, you know, they really don't like church people because they complain all the time and they're not really good tippers. You know what? Bless your waitress today. Reach out to them with hope. Say something kind to them. You know, you can put a verse down on the, on the bill if you want, but make sure you give a good tip. Don't put a verse and no tip down. That, that's lousy, okay? What else was Jesus doing at the end of the, of the day? Look at verse 41. And demons also came out of, a many, out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. 
Notice Jesus rebuked even more demons and didn't allow them to, to speak either. Why? Again, he didn't want the devil for a pure man. Well, what a day in the life of Jesus. Teaching in the morning, casting out demons, ministering in the afternoon in Simon's home, laying on the hands of the sick in the evening, and they just keep coming and coming and coming, casting out demons, healing every single one of them. How do you keep up with such a pace without getting frazzled out, stressed out, without being overwhelmed by the needs and the demands? How do we keep up such a pace with kids and needing to go to school and jobs and groceries and church and ministries and families and sickness? And what is the solution? How did Jesus do it? The key is in this closing verses here in chapter 4. Look at verse 42. It's a new day. The next morning we read, Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. In Mark's gospel, we get a little more insight. It says in Mark 1, verse 35, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now we might, after having a day like Jesus had, say, you know what, I'm just going to sleep in tomorrow. It was a busy day. I'm just going to take, take it easy. I need to sleep. I need my strength. But you see, the key to getting your strength is not found in sleeping in. It's found in getting alone with God. The key to not living a stressed out, frazzled out life is found in spending time with the Lord in His Word and in prayer. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, put it this way, and I quote, The morning is the gate of the day, and it should be well guarded with prayer. It is one end of the thread on which the day's actions are strung and should be well knotted with devotion. If we felt the majesty of life, we should be more careful of its mornings. He who rushes from his bed to his business and waiteth not to worship is as foolish as though he had not put on his clothes or cleansed his face and as unwise as though he had dashed into battle without weapons or armor. Be it ours to bathe in the softly flowing river of communion with God before the heat of the wilderness and the burden of the way begins to oppress. I like that. It's only after Jesus spent time in prayer that the people came to him with what they thought he should be doing. We read that the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. Jesus, everyone's looking to you. Everyone wants you. They're all talking about you. Don't go. Don't go. But Jesus spent time in communion with his father first. And he wasn't going to be swayed by popularity. He wasn't going to be driven by need. I think those are two problems we all can face. Everyone putting demands on you and, and the needs are so great. But what we need to do is what God find out what God wants you to do. And how do you do that? Get in that secret place, that morning hour. Some it's in the evening, depends when you work, but it's a time where before anyone's up, where there's no distractions and you can seek the Lord and spend that time in His Word and in prayer. And I tell you, there's been times that God has woken me up in the middle of the night just to pray for certain people. Why? Because with prayer comes direction. When everyone was looking for Jesus after the Sabbath, they found him praying. That was a secret of his life which kept him from giving in to the stress and the pressures and the demands and the whims of the people. Listen, I know our churches, our homes, our societies filled with physically, emotionally, and spiritually sick people. We know our world is filled, if not with demon-possessed people, certainly people who are being held captive by the devil to do horrible things in our world today. And it can be very overwhelming. 
But what we must realize is that we are not the Savior of the world. Jesus is. And we serve Him. And His desires that each one of us to minister to our world. But in order to be truly effective, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God and the Word of God. That's the key to not getting stressed out. The, the, the key to not being frazzled by the end of your day. To meet with Jesus in that secret place and pray. Ask God for that fresh filling of His Holy Spirit. Pray for direction. Pray for your family. Pray for, for ministry. And God will keep you in that place of His perfect peace. His Word says so. Isaiah 26.3 You will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Finally, as we close, maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ. If you are not a believer, if you've not surrendered your life to Christ, then God has been talking to you this morning. He told you through His Word that you had been taken captive by the devil to do His will. You're probably not possessed, but you are oppressed, to say the least, that you need to be released. And that only comes when you turn your life over to Jesus Christ. When you surrender and say, God, I'm through living on my own. I need your forgiveness. I want to live for you. Thank you for going to the cross for me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me, rising again from the dead. I give my life to you. You do that, and you'll find peace and joy and hope. Life in the Spirit. So if you, if you want to give your life to Christ, as soon as service is over, please come up to me. Talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. Talk to one of the pastors up here. would love to pray with you. Give you a Bible. Let you know what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word, how powerful it is to affect our lives and to give us hope. Lord, we thank you that we recognize that though the world seems to be falling apart, everything is falling right into place. You have a plan and a purpose with what's going on. We know your return is near. So Lord, help us to recognize that and to look for those opportunities that we might serve you, Lord, that we might honor you with our lives. And Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their life to you, they're not born again this morning. Lord, through your word that was taught, I pray that it touches their lives and they would make that commitment to you today. Stop running from you and run to you. Lord, thank you for this time together, Lord. We, we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tell us down to do one last song together.